All right, let's go ahead and take our seats. You can be turning in your Bibles or turning on your Bibles to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. I'm going to introduce Craig here. So Craig, like I said, Craig Cabanis spoke at our marriage retreat Friday and Saturday. Great material. We really appreciated his uh, fresh perspective on, on a familiar topic, the topic of marriage. And he walked us through the Bible in some ways beginning to end and just bringing out the key the key truths that we need to uh, resonate with when it comes to the topic of marriage. So please, if you weren't there, uh, I know that some of you weren't, but if you weren't there, please listen to that. Uh, it's now available, and we'll have the outlines uh, uploaded as soon as we can. So that was great. Craig serves us in a variety of ways, uh, but one of the ways, you know, we're part of Trinity Fellowship Churches. Our, our church is part of a denomination, Trinity Fellowship Churches, and Craig serves uh, as, you know, it's a small denomination, nine churches, so all so the elders do a lot of different things. But one of the things he does there is serves on our oversight committee. So they help us stay organized uh, as a group and organize our conferences and things like that. So we appreciate, we appreciate their work uh, very much in that. Craig has planted two churches. He planted a church in San Diego uh, some years ago. And then he moved uh, closer to home, uh, back to Frisco, Texas. And he planted Grace Church there in 2005. So he's from Houston, went back in some ways back home to uh, plant the Frisco Church. And he's been doing that since 2005. So that's one of the churches that we, we visit uh, somewhat regularly in Trinity when we do our conferences. So they host us and do an excellent job at that. And me, as well as the other elders here, uh, just appreciate his, his character, his leadership. Uh, he's a... He's a, he's a level-headed leader, you know, so in a crisis, he's a good man to have on your side, and we appreciate that. Appreciate his humility, his character, uh, so, and his teaching gift. So we wouldn't ask him to preach here unless we felt like he had a, a teaching gift that we wanted to share with you. So this morning we get to do that. The message he's going to share is actually one that he shared with the elders uh, in Trinity last spring. And just as thinking about him coming out this fall, it seemed like this would be a great uh, a great. Um, um, a great topic for us. So as you'll hear, it's on our being sent. So as the Father has sent Jesus, so Jesus sends us. And so Craig, please come, share with us. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks, man. This morning's reading is from John chapter 20, verses 19 to 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Hear the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, it is wonderful to be with you, and it's great to come in this morning and see a lot of familiar faces just from the marriage uh, retreat. Prior to this week, I really only knew uh, the, your elders, uh, the elders of this church, um, and so it was great to meet so many of you in a relaxed, you know, uh, three-day setting and get to talk to you and hear uh, what God's doing in your lives. So thanks for all that participated, and thank you for your welcome. This has really been uh, an experience of being uh, so welcomed and encouraged and just uh, feel like 
part of your family just being here a couple of days. So thanks for your open hearts towards me, and uh, it's 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 wonderful. I've known about your church. Uh, for a very long time, uh, because I've been friends for a long time with Phil, uh, and Phil's just been a dear friend to me and an encouragement, and we've been able to walk through a number of things together, and uh, he's, it's all, anytime I get with Phil is uh, always, uh, uh, always encouraging, brother, so I love you and I'm so grateful for our history together, and I'm getting to know Daniel a lot better as well, and man, you, you guys are well-led. He said some things about what I do in uh, Trinity Fellowship Churches, uh, so I'm not just re- returning a favor or something, but I would want you to know that your lead pastor, um, Daniel, is really a significant leader in our fledgling denomination, because one of the things when you start something like that to begin or laying foundations, one thing that's really important is what do you believe? What's this new denomination believe? Uh, How do we understand the scripture? And so Daniel has really been a key figure, key leader, uh, investing time in in, um, writing our confession of faith. And so he would be highly esteemed among our churches as a man who's capable with God's word and has a sharp theological mind uh, and is a humble man. So, Daniel, I really appreciate you as well. And thanks for what you're doing that's benefiting not only this church, but uh, a number of churches and by God's grace in the future, many more. So thank you. Uh, thank you for what you're doing. Well, today we are looking at John 20. And what I want to talk about today is sort of fine-tuning our view of mission fine-tuning our view of mission. I recently had a little medical test, and uh, something happened that has never happened to me before. I, I haven't had, you know, tons of medical tests in my lifetime, but, uh, you know, normally when you're receiving some time, type of test, the, the person that tests you um, or treats you is, is really to be poker-faced, right? You're just be, you know, straight. You don't give a signal, is this test, is it good or bad? You're just there making the patient feel comfortable. So I had to have a, an echocardiogram, which is a, uh, it's a sonogram for the heart. Ladies that have had babies where they have the sonogram and you can hear the baby's heartbeat, it's the exact same thing except it's your heart. So I went and, you know, uh, obviously they're checking your heart, so you kind of hope like it's good. Uh, so I go, and this uh, lady, you know, very helpful, she takes care of me, gets me set up, gets the machine set up, and takes this thing and puts it on my heart, and instantly you could start hearing, you know, that sound going on. And as soon as it came clear, she's looking at this screen, I'm just laying next to her, she's looking at this screen, and as soon as my heart, I could hear it, as soon as it became clear on there, she exclaimed, she sounded shocked, almost exasperated. She said, wow, these walls are thin. And I'm thinking, what? These walls are thin? Keep it to yourself, ma'am. What are you talking? <laughs> well, can you fix that? I'm thinking, what do you mean? Like, my, like blood gushing out? The walls are so thin. They're leaking. They're breaking. They're tearing. What, what is my wall? It just happened in a moment. I'm instantly in a panic. I'm thinking, I'm about to have a heart attack on your little camera thing here. <laughs> So she said it, oh, wow, these walls are so thin. And as soon as she saw my heart, and then she paused a second and said, you can hear everything they're saying next door. (laughs) So then I, you know, skipped a couple beats and listened, and I could hear these nurses in the room next door yucking it up. I had never heard of that. I wasn't paying attention. They're yucking it up, and she's saying, (laughs) she's not talking about these walls, you know, not that. She's talking about these walls around us. And 
it is just one little tweak in my understanding of that phrase made all the difference. When I, it, just a little tweak, when this, the same phrase with a little different understanding uh, went from uh, panic to relief and rest. And what I'd like to do today is look at a common statement from Jesus and ask that the Lord, through his scripture, might just fine-tune our understanding a little bit, almost like looking for a station on the radio dial where you're, you're moving and, you know, it's a little, that's a little old school, that right there, but you're tw twisting it a little bit and it's a little fuzzy and it's not coming in, then all of a sudden, boom, it's crystal clear and you can hear it. And so we're going to look at something that's not a new passage for you if you're familiar with the scripture, uh, but I, I trust that the Lord will adjust and make a small tweak and with a small tweak in our understanding of the phrase, it could bring a big difference. So the passage uh, that was read for us this morning uh, is, a, is a passage that has to do with the Great Commission uh, according to John's Gospel. We often think of the Great Commission in Matthew, but this is John's Gospel. And uh, what's happening in the context here is this is Easter evening. So by the time verse 19, that was our first verse, by the time we get to verse 19, Peter and John have already seen the empty tomb. Uh, Jesus has already appeared to Mary Magdalene, and now the, Jesus appears to his disciples. And his disciples are, uh, they are gathered, they are hiding out behind locked doors, verse 19, because they were a fear of the Jews. They had a fear of the Jews. So they're locked in a room, they're hiding out, the, their great hope and dream of the kingdom has been, you, you know, Shatter. They don't know what's going to happen next. And so they're hiding out. And all of a sudden, the text says that Jesus came and stood among them. Now, they're in locked doors. So apparently, something miraculous happens here. It doesn't say, did he just like pass through or did the door miraculously unlock? But it seems like something stunning has happened. And he's standing in the midst of them. And then he speaks these words to them, peace be with you. Peace be with you, verse 19. Now, that's a common greeting, peace be with you. But when he's saying it now as the resurrected Lord, uh, it, it's not just a common greeting. He is speaking a word that is true, a word of comfort and care to a room full of fearful men who have deserted their Lord. One has denied him, Peter. And so he is speaking this word of tremendous comfort, peace be with you. The word peace is a rich theological word that doesn't just mean like an absence of conflict. Peace doesn't just mean like uh, tranquility in one's soul. I've got a peaceful, easy feeling, as the song used to go. So it's not that. It's not just sort of like a restful soul. It means something more. It's overall well-being. It's an overall well-being that comes from having a right relationship with God. True peace. And so you notice when he says it, verse 20, he said this, peace be with you. Then he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So this kind of peace, he's saying peace be with you and then recognizes his wounds of crucifixion. It's a picture that because Jesus died as our sacrifice, now there's peace for them. Now there is something greater than tranquility. There is this, this reality that they, by faith, are right with God. 
The deserters and the denier are at peace with God because Jesus died for their sins and has the scars to prove it, to demonstrate to them. No wonder it says that the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. He didn't come in judgment saying, you rejected me, you ran off, you denied me. He comes saying, peace to you, for I have paid the price for your sins. And if you're here today and you've never uh, experienced real peace in your soul, you've never trusted Jesus as the Savior who died for our sins, rose again to defeat the power of sin and death. If you've never uh, experienced that forgiveness and a clean conscience, a new life, uh, then the Lord uh, opens that to you as well. You can simply believe, you can turn to him, repent from your sin, trust in him, and the Lord will say the very same thing over you. Peace to you for all eternity. Uh, You will be right with God by trusting him and putting your faith in him, turning away from yourself and your sins to him and to him alone. Well, this is a glorious demonstration of the gospel. The resurrected Lord invades the the darkness of their fear, uh, comes into the locked room, displays the scars of his sacrifice, tells them they have peace with God, and that sets the stage for the commissioning that he next gives them. He repeats it again in verse 21. He said again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So that's the statement we're going to spend the majority of our time on. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. The disciples are here being commissioned, and by extension, the church, we as well, are being commissioned as well. Uh, As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Well, where are they sent? He doesn't say anything about that, but he did three chapters earlier. In John 17, he said, the Father sent the Son, and now the Son sends his followers into the world. So just as Jesus was sent into the world, now he is commissioning his followers in an official way, uh, sending them into the world with the message of the gospel. So I really want to talk just about two things and then talk about how do we respond to this. So the first is we want to look at the sender, and then secondly, we're going to look at the sent. We'll look at sender and then the sent. Our our immediate impulse when we read something like the Great Commission or this kind of commissioning uh, is usually to move very quickly to fleshing out what does it mean to be sent? You know, what is our mission? It's where we go oftentimes very uh, very quickly. But we want to say a few things about the, the sent one, because uh, if we rush over as the Father has sent me, we'll really miss, uh, we'll really miss a, a, a biblical understanding of our mission. Now, the word mission, I'm using that mission, it, the word mission, it's not in the text, but it sort of is in the text, because the word mission comes from a Latin word, which means to send, to send. So at the very heart of the word, when we speak of mission, uh, we're speaking about being sent. Uh, And the resurrected Christ here is the center of this picture. The one who sends the church is himself the sent one, as the Father has sent me. Now here's something interesting. If you read the Gospel of John, you'll find out the most common designation for Jesus uh, is not son of God or son of man or anything like that. 
Uh, it is sent. It's the sent one. There's always, they're always speaking. John is always speaking in some way, describing Jesus as sent. It's, it's just throughout the scripture. For instance, uh, John 3, 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So Jesus's identity, as he's presented in this gospel, is the one who is sent from the Father. It's the very core of his being is the Messiah who has come under the Father's authority, the Messiah who has been commissioned and has been sent uh, to rescue sinners as God is building a people for himself. Now, here's why this is important, because Jesus' commission to his disciples is rooted in his own mission. It's rooted in his mission. The, the story of the sent son is now sending uh, his own disciples. And it's important for us to think about this, because our mission is determined by his mission. It's dependent on his mission. We could say, apart from God's mission, we have no mission. It is easy for us to talk about mission and sort of stay on a horizontal plane. Like, what are we sent to do? And, and talk about our responsibility as a witness, or our call to be salt and light, or our call to, to live on mission or have a missional lifestyle as the modern uh, language sometimes is used in the evangelical church. So we can think about that a lot. But in the Bible, mission uh, is very much a vertical issue more than a horizontal issue. It is Jesus who is on mission. It is Jesus who is sent. The movement of mission in the Bible is God coming to people to rescue and save them. God coming to reveal himself. Jesus coming to reveal the Father. He is the sent one who comes to reveal the Father to those who hear him. The primary movement of mission is Jesus as sent. Missiologists use a Latin phrase uh, that is called missio dei. Missio mission and dei, D-E-I, the Latin word, not D-A-Y, D-E-I rather, D-E-I, the Latin word for God. They can't say mission of God. They have to say missio Dei because it sounds, I don't know, intellectual and smart and distinguished and nobody knows what you mean. But anyway, missio Dei means mission of God. And the idea of it is that missiologists talk about the mission belongs to God, not us. We are a mere instrument of what God has done and what God is doing to reach the world. But the mission is God's. God is the primary actor in the mission. One author said, God is sender, sent, and sending. The Father is the sender, Jesus is the Son who is sent, and Jesus here is sending people out of his own sentness, if we could say that. Uh, as the Father has sent me, I have this mission, as I've been sent, now I am sending you out of his, out of the flow of his, empowered by his mission. This is the idea of the Missio Dei, that God, from the beginning of Scripture, uh, from, uh, as we looked at the retreat, from Genesis 3, where he promises to send one who will crush the serpent's head, from that point until the wedding supper of the Lamb that we heard read about and sang about this morning, it is all about God pursuing uh, a people, Jesus pursuing his bride. 
I know I'm saying the same thing over and over, but I'm going to apply it in a second. Because this is the tweak I think we need to understand, that mission is about what God is doing uh, first before what we are doing. But he does talk to the sent as well, number two, the sent. Verse 19, he says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. As means sort of in a like manner. Not identical, not duplicate. We are not sent. We don't, uh, we're, not, we're not God incarnate. We don't make atonement for anybody's sins or anything like that. So what is the nature? If he says, as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. What is the nature of our mission, our being sent, to his being sent? How do they relate together? Well, the grammar of this text in the original, it was originally, if you're new to the scripture, the scripture was not written in English. Um, it was uh, written in, uh, in Greek initially, uh, the New Testament was. And the, the, uh, the verb that says, um, verse 19, uh, uh, I'm sorry, that's not right, verse uh, 21, as the Father has sent me, the first verb, has sent me, is in the perfect tense. And the perfect tense is a tense that describes past completed action with results that continue. So if you're speaking about something that happened in the past with ongoing results, ongoing effect, that's the perfect tense. So that's what's communicated here. I am sending you as the Father has sent me, so I send you. That is in the second verb, uh, I am sending you, is uh, present. It's a continuous action. But the sending of Jesus is perfect tense, something that happened in the past with lingering, ongoing results. The Father sent the Son in the past, but the result of that sending has an ongoing effect. Jesus is still sent. He doesn't cease being sent. He is still the sent one. I am sending you as well, he says. So uh, the Father sent me in the past. That's the incarnation, God becoming man and Jesus. The Father sent me in the past, and I remain the sent one. And now in my mission as the sent one, I'm sending you as well. Um, Here's a helpful comment on what I'm trying to express here from D.A. Carson, who's a New Testament scholar or Bible scholar. He said, it's probably wrong to think of the disciples simply replacing Jesus. The perfect tense in as the Father has sent me suggests that Jesus is in an ongoing state of sentness. Just because he ascends to the Father does not mean he is no longer the sent one par excellence. Thus, Christ's disciples do not take over Jesus' mission. His mission continues and is effective in their ministry. So there's not two missions. This is, this is how I have thought about it. And so it's sort of how I thought, especially growing up, that there's Jesus' mission and then the church, and that a, that a nice metaphor for that would be like a relay runner uh, passing the baton to the next runner. So Jesus comes in the Gospels, he's got the baton, you know, he's doing what God's called him to do, things we can never do, obey the law perfectly, dying as an atonement for our sins, being raised uh, from the dead, stuff we can never do. So he's, he's, the, he's doing the work of redemption and salvation. But then he ascends to the Father, and he hands the baton, and the church gets the baton, and then it is our job to sort of finish the mission that Jesus began. I, I heard a, a really 
a really poor illustration when I was a high school student, and it stuck with me. I, I, don't, I wish some of the good illustrations stuck, but uh, this is a really, this is an illustration I heard. I don't remember who preached it, but somebody was preaching about evangelism. And they told this story, this make-believe, fictional, you'll know it's fictional as soon as I start to tell it, but this fictional story about Jesus. And they said that Jesus uh, died, was buried, resurrected, ascended to heaven. So after Jesus ascended to heaven, uh, he was having a conversation with an angel, and the, the angel said to Jesus, now that you've done the work of salvation, what, what is going to happen now? And Jesus said, well, I, I handed off you know, the mission. I commissioned my followers to go into all the world and to preach the gospel. And uh, so now everybody will hear what I've done uh, because my people will go out and spread the good news. And the angel said to Jesus in the fictional story, um, well, what if they don't? What if they fail? And then the punchline with great shocking, you know, effect was Jesus responded, I have no other plan. And so I'm in the thinking, oh, oh, I got to help Jesus out because, you know, <laughs> he, does, he doesn't have another plan. It is on me. If I blow it, I cannot. Jesus is counting on us, church. It's this feeling of, man, Jesus is wringing his hands. I told them what to do. He has no other plan than us. So he handed us the baton. And I guess the closing comment would be, don't drop the baton. You know, that would have been, oh, don't drop the baton because Jesus is counting on me. That is not a biblical idea at all. Jesus didn't ascend and check out of the game and cheer us on on the sidelines and maybe give us the spirit when we need him. Jesus is still on mission. You're only here today because Jesus uh, came after you. The sent one was sent to you to open your eyes to the message of the gospel. We all, Jesus came for us. He is still moving, carrying the gospel through his people all over the world. He, he is not simply handing us the baton and checked out. He is the sent one, not just past action. That's the perfect tense. If it, that's the perfect tense. It was the past action with ongoing and continuous effect or results. Bruce Milne, uh, the author Bruce Milne writes, Rather, it is one single action, the great movement of the missionary heart of God sending forth his son into the world, initially through the incarnation, that means Jesus becoming man, God becoming man, subsequently through his church, the one mission of God has two phases. The first is that of the son in his incarnate life. The second is that of the son in his risen life through his people. So there's two phases to Jesus' mission. When he's on earth and now he's resurrected, this is the new phase of his mission, and he's using his people to accomplish his mission. And that's why the book of Acts begins with Luke writing. So Luke writes the gospel of Luke, and then he writes the story of the expansion of the first church in, uh, in Acts. And that's why the beginning of his book says, in the first book, meaning the gospel of Luke, in the first book, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. So almost the entire book of Acts, uh, Jesus is not present on earth physically. We, we see his ascension in the first chapter of Acts. So he's not present. 
But the book of Acts is what Jesus is continuing to do. Why? Because he's always the sent one. He is pushing his mission forward to reach a people for himself. And when we get that idea, mission really takes on a renewed glory. It's a, it's a subtle shift, but I believe it's a transforming shift to step back and say the mission is not primarily, mostly about my witness. It's not mostly about our church's outreach. It's not chiefly about my support of global missions. It's mostly about, ultimately about, centrally about the mission of Jesus, the sent one, into the world. And our calling is to serve his mission. It's not to fulfill our mission that we have created. Uh, like a company you know, coming up with a mission statement. It's not like we have this mission that we're accomplishing as a church. It is Jesus accomplishing his mission. And that brings a sense of urgency to us to be aware, what is God doing in people all around me? What's God doing in Apex and the connected communities here in your area? What's God doing in my family? What's God doing among my coworkers? Jesus is on mission. He's not sitting in the stands watching. He's active. So what is he doing? It brings a sense of anticipation to think that he is the sent one who is still sent. It, it brings a sense of privilege to be a part of what Jesus is doing. Not my mission. His, I get to be a part of his mission. He's not blessing your mission. You get to be a part of his mission, which is always blessed. He's not blessing yours. You're a part of his. It's, it's, there's a joy in that. When we get beyond a horizontal strategy like growing the church or reaching the city or touching the nations or something like this and say, Jesus is reaching people all around us and he is pleased to use weak vessels like you and like me as part of his mission. Jesus ever lives on mission, and he calls us to serve his mission. So we can only speak of our mission in a secondary sort of a way. It's, it's more than semantics, though. It's, it's, it's more than semantics. We only speak of our mission in a secondary way. Here's the big idea, that our mission is to serve Jesus' mission. A small tweak, but our mission is to serve Jesus' mission. It's not to have Jesus, by his power, serve our mission. Our mission is to serve his mission. Our mission is to serve the sense one as he advances the gospel through us in the relationships he's afforded us, in the opportunities he's given us, uh, to support what he's doing in other locations as well. That is our mission, to to serve the mission of God. Listen to this quote from an Old Testament scholar who's also something of a missiologist, I'd say, but an Old Testament scholar, Christopher Wright. He said, mission belongs to our God. Mission is not ours, mission is God's. Certainly the mission of God is the prior reality out of which flows any mission that we get involved in. Or, as it has been nicely put, it is not so much the case that God has a mission for his church in the world, but that God has a church for his mission in the world. Mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission, God's mission. 
So a little bit of a wordplay there, but what he's saying is the story of the Bible is that God, of course, created a people uh, in a perfect environment, Adam and Eve. They fell, they rebelled against God, and sin uh, infected everything in the creation, and uh, ultimately it broke our relationship with God. But God promised to redeem us, to reconcile us to himself uh, by, by sending one who would uh, who would, as a savior, would save us and rescue us. And so we see the whole Old Testament is God uh, building a people for himself that was a, to be a light to the nations, to the Gentiles, so that they could understand what is God like as they observe how his people live, as they observe how his people obey his law. What is God like? Um, and uh, they, they gave them a, a means of worship, a, a sacrificial system which pointed to the need for forgiveness and pointed to the one who would come and bring that forgiveness. And he sent prophets to proclaim that one is coming who's going to bring ultimate rescue and some of these temporary things uh, will go away and find their fulfillment in Christ. And Jesus came and he, he, lived, he fulfilled the law, obeyed it perfectly. He, he taught the way of God. He revealed God as the one sent from the Father. He did miracles um, and demonstrated the power of God, who Jesus is. His miracles were signposts to the, to the Father who sent him. Uh, he died for our sins. He was sacrificed for us. He was buried and raised to defeat the enemy, the death, the power of sin, and all that kind of thing. So this is the mission of God. All of that is in service to God's mission to draw people for himself, for Jesus to have a bride for himself, the church, the people of God. It's, it's all that, God doing that to bring a people for himself. And the church are those who have been saved by God and now have the privilege in Jesus Christ, now have the privilege to share that message with others so that his people grow and all that, that he has intended to save, they'll all be saved. So the mission of God is very much that after the fall, reconciling uh, things to himself. Ultimately, Ephesians says that all things will be unified, things in heaven and earth in Christ. That's his mission, is to, to have um, a, a people in eternity and a new heaven and earth that worship him and live, as Daniel said earlier, in a glorious environment without sin and suffering and all that thing. So that is, God, that is the mission of God that's moving through history. And he has a church to accomplish that mission. It is the people, it, it, his mission is to receive glory And he draws people to himself and builds a church so that we would be the ones who know him, know his word, could glorify him, could proclaim his excellencies so that others could know him. So God's mission to reach people has a church. We are the vehicle. We are the instrument of that. Sometimes we have it the other way than the author said there. We say, well, well, uh, you know, as a church, we have a mission, but we're made for God's mission. A A small shift but one that makes mission God-centered rather than man-centered. One that makes the work uh, God's work and not ours. Something that makes us dependent upon him rather than inviting him to bless our plans and ideas. Well, there remains kind of a question here, and that is, in what way is our sending like his? Because he does say, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. I think we can, he's making a comparison between the center, sender, I'm sorry, the sender and the sent. As the Father, the sender, sent me, so I, the sender, am sending you. And I think the sender-sent relationship in the Gospel of John in particular is one of dependence. So throughout, Jesus proclaims uh, 
his dependence on the Father for everything he does. So John 5, for instance, says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So as the Father sent me, Jesus says, and I do what it, you know, he has called me to do, so I'm sending you, so you are uh, dependent as well. And the reason I think in the text that we see that he immediately is talking about our dependence upon him as he is dependent on the Father is the next verse. Verse 22, after saying, I'm sending you, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So you are dependent as well, and I'm giving you the Spirit of God, the, the very presence, the indwelling Spirit of God to empower you as you are serving my mission to reach the world and redeem a people for myself. So how do we respond to that idea that, okay, what is, what, what's, this, what's sort of like, what's the street level value of understanding that Jesus is the, uh, is the owner of the mission, it is his mission, that he is the sent one, he remains the sent one, and that our calling is simply to serve uh, him as the, uh, in his mission is sent. Well, I think the first one is, it should produce a gratitude in us. I'm thankful for people that shared the gospel with me, primarily my mom growing up. So I'm thankful that the Lord used someone to share good, the good news of Jesus with me or I wouldn't be here. But ultimately, it was the missional God that sent for me. He used someone else. He used the preaching of the word in the church I grew up in. But it was God that came after me. The Father sent the Son for me. The Father sent the Son who gave the Spirit who opened my eyes. So praise God that Jesus is the sent one. God would have been perfectly uh, just in after the fall, just allowing us to go our way and sin and eternal condemnation. That would be just. But God is merciful and gracious, and he came after us. So in the mission, we, if we have a, a God-centered view of the mission, we need to see ourselves as objects who have received because Jesus was sent to give his life for us and to open our eyes and ears to him. And the missional God calls us to join in his mission. What an indescribable gift. I think oftentimes when we think about mission, evangelism, outreach, whatever, whatever term you want to use, you know, being a witness, being a witness, being salt and light. Whenever we think of that, oftentimes I think Christians, we feel it's a burden. It's in the category of stuff I ought to do and stuff that I'm not doing because it's stuff that I'm not good at or I don't want to do or I'm fearful or whatever it is. So it's oftentimes, if you hear, but we're going to have a sermon on prayer or evangelism, people are guilty right off the bat because nobody prays enough or evangelizes enough, right? So we all feel that. But I think it should create a sense of gratitude. I have been invited in, more than that, commissioned to participate in the greatest mission in the universe, the mission of Jesus. And he wants to use you and he wants to use me, calling us into his mission. So that, that, there's a sense in which that should create a gratitude. Thank you, Lord, that my life, whatever you've called me to do, that my life uh, is part of the most important thing in the universe. So there should be some, there should be gratitude, I think, when we make this shift. Another thing would be relief. Just a sense of relief that the mission 
is God's. That obviously, I'm going to say something about our responsibility, but let's start here first. The mission is God's. I didn't die to save anyone from their sins. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I can't open ears. I can't open blind eyes. I can't regenerate a dead heart and give it new life. That's all what the Lord does. Uh, It is God's mission. God is ultimately responsible. Jesus is not standing in heaven in a fictional conversation with an angel saying, I don't know. Uh, I don't have plan B. I don't have another plan. It's up to them. He's not looking down saying, don't let me down, Cornerstone Church. That's not what the Lord's saying today. The Lord is saying, I am God of heaven and earth. I am capable and all-powerful to save anyone that I choose to save. He's not dependent on us. That is such a relief. Such a relief. I mean, to live with the, the, the idea that my neighbor is, is, is not a Christian, and that's like somehow my fault. Now, I have a responsibility to be a witness. I, I want to be clear. But it's not, I can't save them. And, and it, that, is, that is God's work. That is God's mission. When we shift our focus from a man-centered mission to a God-centered mission, it produces a deep rest in us. And you know what? Then we're able to work, be faithful, serve, love, testify. We're able to do all of that from a position of rest. God doesn't want us acting out of guilt in some kind of frantic sense that we're blowing it. God wants us to know he is in control, and he is on mission, and he is saving people. That The sovereignty of God in salvation, the sovereignty of God in the mission is a, is a relief and a motivation. That motivates me. It's all on me. I'm not very good at it. What am I going to say? That doesn't motivate me. It gives me a stomach ulcer. But when I think God is saving, Jesus is on mission, and he has said to us, get involved in what I'm doing. Follow me, because I am, uh, I am saving people. That is a glory. So it brings a tremendous relief. And I wonder if some of us need the relief of the Holy Spirit today, where there is anxiety or fear or false guilt. There can be true guilt when we're unfaithful. There's true guilt but we, that we give to the Lord and receive forgiveness. But there's a kind of false guilt that I'm responsible to save everybody. You're, you're not. That's, that's idolatry. That's putting yourself in the place of God. And so I wonder if some of us today need the message of rest for our souls, that God is on mission and he, he knows the circumstance with your parents. He knows the circumstance with your brother. He knows your child's heart. He knows your boss's heart. He knows what's going on in the neighbor next door's life. And he is sovereign over all. He is able to turn their hearts in a millisecond and grant life where there is death. His mission is good. He reached you. He is faithful. And so there is is a rest in our soul that always comes when we take ultimate responsibility for things like conversion and regeneration, put them back where they belong on God. The Father sent me, why? To seek and to save that which was lost. That's what Jesus said, and he's very good at it. And he is seeking and he is saving while we said he may regenerate someone this morning in this room. That's the God we serve. He is seeking and saving, and he invites us just to be a part of that. So there's a relief and a gratitude. 
And I would say there's also a faith. God wants to stir confidence in us for the mission of Cornerstone Church in this community. Because, because it's not your mission. Because it's his mission that you are joining. Cornerstone joins the mission of Jesus to reach sinners in Apex and surrounding communities, to bring them into relationship with him, and then to call them to follow him as disciples. That's Jesus' mission, and uh, he's invited you to be a part. So that stirs faith. Another quote from Christopher Wright that I thought was helpful. He says, For we know that behind all our fumbling efforts and inadequate communication stands the supreme will of the living God, reaching out in self-revelation, incredibly willing to open blind eyes and reveal his glory through the treasure of the gospel delivered in the clay pots of his witnesses. Or clay pots, that's a 2 Corinthians 4 reference. We don't talk a lot about clay pots. It's just saying we ain't much. We're clay pots. I mean, we, we're, we're, not bringing, we're not really bringing that much. Let's be honest. None of us are bringing that much that's that impressive. Paul told the Corinthians that. You guys, none of you are impressive. That's what he said, you know. Not, none of us. It is, it is Jesus that is impressive, and it's Jesus that your daughter or your neighbor or uh, your client needs to be impressed with um, through you. God uses weak people doesn't mean we don't want to be trained. We want to know the gospel. We want to learn the scripture. It's appropriate to study apologetics. We want to understand how we can communicate the gospel. Uh, we want to learn how can we serve and relate to others in a way that gives us an open door to share the good news. We want to be excellent employees, whatever we do in our work. Uh, we want to be faithful so that our work says something about the character of God and who he is and his work in us as a disciple. So there are things for us to do for sure, but we want to put our confidence, not in my knowledge of apologetics, uh, not, not, in my, uh, you know, not in my sales skills uh, to persuade someone to believe. We want to grow. We want to know God's word. We want to be faithful. We want to pray. We want to be diligent. But our confidence and faith is in the sovereign God of the universe who thought uh, it wise to send his son, the sent one who remains sent. We join his mission. Number four, I believe in this kind of a view that we were called to see the mission of God all around us because Jesus, the sent one, the Lord of heaven and earth, uh, who holds everyone and everything in his hands, uh, he is always at work in a million ways around you that you do not know. He is always at work. God has put you in places. He's put you in a neighborhood, put you in an apartment complex. Uh, he's put you in a job. He's put your kid on a, a soccer team where you're interacting with the other soccer parents on that team. He's given you a hobby, you know, uh, so that you play golf with guys or uh, you're in a book club or whatever, whatever you do with people that don't know the Lord. He's, he's placed you in, in an environment where you have relationships through your job, through your work, the people that you see on a daily basis. He's given you next-door neighbors. He causes you to run into people that he sovereignly ordains that you will meet. He's given you a family 
That was his plan. So God has put you in places and relationships as you do your work, as you recreate. Uh, he's put you in a neighborhood as you serve in your community. You may be involved in, a, uh, in the community, serving in various ways because Jesus has sent you there. Jesus is sent, and he is reaching, and we're to live sent as well. He's given us the Spirit of God so that all of life becomes an environment where we are uh, witnesses for the Lord, where he is reaching people through us. That is God's plan. He reaches people through his people, and he places them sovereignly in places where they will be connected with folks who need the gospel. So this is wonderful because it really becomes uh, an eye-opening, a call to open our eyes and say, where can I see God at work around me? You know what one of the most, if, if Jesus, if we believe Jesus is on mission, and he's faithful to reach his people all around us. What becomes one of the most important evangelistic skills is something every one of us can do. One of the most important evangelistic skills is to listen to people. To listen. Because he's put you around people. He's, he's, he's acting. He's working. And when we really listen to others, take an interest in others, first of all, that's completely countercultural. You know, everybody just kind of wants to talk about themselves. That's natural. But very few people, if you meet someone that takes a genuine interest in you, and really, I'm not talking about another, you know, in the church that happens, but outside of the church, that, that is a rare thing. You can pay for it, you know, if you, you know, see a counselor, they're paid to listen and can, can offer help as well. But if, you, if someone really takes an interest in you and listens, wants to know, that that is, that is radical, but it's there where that happens that you begin to hear people's burdens, you begin to hear their hopes, you begin to see how God may be reaching them. Not long ago, I, I went and uh, I, I was getting my hair cut by someone who had never cut my hair before. And uh, so it was a lady and we were, we were sort of talking and I was kind of just thinking, l l do a good job, but do it fast, fast but good. And because I got to get going, I wasn't really thinking about having meaningful conversations because I wasn't aware that Jesus was on mission all around me. I was aware of uh, what I needed to do in that moment. So I wasn't having, I wasn't as clear as I am in this moment. So anyway, she started cutting my hair, and so she, somehow the conversation turned, and she was asking, uh, you know, what I did, which kind of opened the door. I, I'm, you know, I'm outed at that point, so I want to be in a hurry, but now, okay, that's the question. Now we're going to talk about what I do, and uh, so that's going to be go really good. Either she's going <coughs> to cough and snip off four inches wrong or something, or, uh, or she's going to be interested. Well, she was interested. She said, really? A church? Your part of church said, this is unbelievable. She said, this morning, I was telling my teenage daughter, we need to check out a church. And she, then she started unburdening her. We've known each other eight minutes. She's unburdening herself. Oh, my daughter's getting in with the wrong friends at high school. I'm so worried. She needs to be around good people. You know, so her idea of church was get around moral people, and a moral lifestyle will be through osmosis transfers to my daughter. She didn't have any idea about the gospel or anything like that. But, okay, here we are. You know, so I was able to talk with her, invite her, and a number of stuff, a number of things there. But it just made me aware that there are people all around us that have deep burdens, that if we will listen, if we'll be aware, God will pull, pull on those strings, and it gives an opportunity to answer, to give them the only hope that exists in the world which they lack. So see the mission of God all around you because Jesus is still the sent one. He's not sent and then it's over and he handed you the baton. Now you figure it out with your evangelism strategy. He has a strategy. We've got to be aware of it 
and we've got to be alert. And finally, see the goal of the mission of God. We want to see the ultimate goal. We want to be grateful that it's his mission, that he is faithful, he reached us. We want to have a sense of gospel relief, that it's not my work, but it's his that reaches. We want to have a sense of faith that God can use my weakest efforts and that God delights to use weak people to show his glory and his strength. We can look for mission all around us, knowing that Jesus is always, uh, uh, is always seeking and saving lost people, and they're in our networks of relationships. And finally, we want to see the ultimate goal. He's going to succeed. There will be no sense of Jesus saying, I didn't have another plan. Sorry, this didn't work out, guys. The Bible tells us exactly how it will work out in Revelation 7, verses 9 through 12. It says, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That's how it ends. That's where we're headed. Jesus is very successful at his mission. The sent one accomplishes all the Father sent him for. And on that day, uh, when we're all standing around the throne, what is everyone saying in that day? Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation is of God. Salvation belongs to Jesus. The mission belongs to Jesus. The saving belongs to Jesus, and we get to be sent from the sent one. As he remains sent, we join him. Our mission is to serve his mission, and he will accomplish his mission. What a privilege to join his mission. How much greater is that than saying, we've got our mission, and we're praying and fasting that God gets behind our efforts? No, God has his own mission, and we're joining that with eyes open, Hearts alert and aware, seeking to pray and love and serve in our daily callings, looking for opportunities that the Lord would give us to share the good news that has reached us because Jesus came for us and he's coming for people all around us as well. May he use us in that endeavor. Let's pray. God, what a sense of relief that you run the universe, that you run our lives. God, we don't know what's going to happen five minutes from now, but you know what will happen for all eternity. So we thank you that you are not only sovereign over all creation, but you're sovereign over our lives, you're sovereign over salvation, and you are sovereign over the mission. Lord, we, we say you don't need us, but what a joy that you use us. You're not dependent upon us. We are dependent upon you. And so we ask that you would sort of fine-tune, tweak our understanding of mission, that it's not Jesus did his part and now we do ours to reach our neighbor, but it's that Jesus does everything and we get to be a part by praying, loving, 
witnessing, opening our mouth and sharing the good news with people all around us. I pray for folks in the room this morning that have been anxious and burdened, Lord, by someone they love. I pray that you would grant them rest today, that you are a faithful Savior. And I pray that rest, out of that rest, that they'd be able to love and serve and witness with fresh power, knowing that you're in control. I pray that you would give us open eyes, Lord, for those of us who have a coworker in a cubicle over or on a Zoom call or on the job site, in the classroom, on our college campus, wherever we are, open our eyes to people all around us that you're, you're reaching and help us, Lord, to join you in your mission to reach our community. We want to join you in what you're doing. Lord, so we pray for that as well. We pray that you would give us confidence in you where we have been lacking confidence in ourselves. Lord, help us to transfer confidence from ourselves to you and grant us a boldness that comes from faith that Jesus, the Savior, is at work by his Spirit saving us. Give us a boldness and confidence, Lord, in you we pray. God, we confess that we've oftentimes just been inactive in mission. Many of us are on it's like we're, we're playing on the inactive reserves or something. We're not even in the game because we, we failed. We don't know what to say. We don't know what to do. We're busy. We pray give us fresh eyes towards you and what you're doing so that we would be empowered. And, Lord, for, for your heart, with your heart, for those around us. Do that. And I pray for this church as well. Thank you for the wonderful people in this church. Thank you for how many you've saved. Thank you for the next generation that's in the room as well and, and in the classes, in the kids' classes. And Lord, we pray that you would save every child and young person in this church. We pray that you would reach everyone. You are the sent Savior who is faithful. And we pray that, Lord, that you would use this church as a city set on a hill which cannot be hidden in this community. That the news, that you would, that you would get your news to people all around through the folks in this room. Lord, would you send them, you the sent one, would you send them as you have into your purposes all around? And may they bear much fruit. I pray this church would, they've borne tremendous fruit over the years, but we pray that they would continue to bear much fruit and reach people who are far from God today who need you. And we trust you for all these things. Thank you for your grace, Lord. Amen. Amen. Stand.